Well, as I said last week, we were going to go through the book of Psalms for a number of weeks. We did a little introduction last week. Uh, today we're moving on to Psalm 8. And for some strange reason, I called this, this sermon Full Circle. And I think you'll figure it out when you see that the very first verse in Psalm 8 is also the same verse at the end of the, at the psalm. This last week, I've been talking to a number of people who have been going through some um, difficult time. Um, I've had messages from <clears throat> young men that uh, played basketball for me in high school back in the day. Uh, one of them, uh, his name was Joel, passed away very suddenly in the evening. Young man, 57, 58 years old. Great young man. In the same time, you know, people have contacted me and asked me to pray for them. Uh, people going through some difficult times. And like all of you, um, you've had difficult times one time or another in your life. No doubt about it. I've dealt with my fair share of difficult times. Uh, I spent 18 years as a teacher. Not always fun and games. And I've spent nearly 40 years now as a pastor, not always fun in games. Uh, so it's recently that I, I started reflecting on some of the life's challenges that I faced. I don't know why I thought about that, but what have I been through in my 79 years of life? Well, it's one thing to think about things that are really difficult in your life. That's one thing. And what happens is you can wallow in that and you can kind of develop a lot of self-pity if you want to and feel sorry for yourself. Oh, woe is me. Look well the bad stuff that happened to me. Uh, but as I was scanning through Scripture, uh, I came across, uh, I was in, in part of my daily Bible reading, uh, I came across the, the story that I had to read more about. It was the story of, of David. It was in Second Samuel, and I ended up reading like, Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. And it's a horrendous story when you see it. Uh, it's the story of King David when he had to run away from his son Absalom who chased him out of town. Now, I'll just give you the kind of the high points of those chapters. Think about this. Absalom had a beautiful sister. Her name was Tamar. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> who is brother from a, a different mother, he had a brother named Amnon. Amnon fell in, I'd say, fell in lust with his stepsister, if you will, and he ended up raping her. And consequently, Absalom, because he was cranked off about that, killed his brother Amnon and then fled Jerusalem. And so for three years, you know, the king's son is on the run, but finally he invites Absalom to come back to Jerusalem, but does not allow him to come into the temple court, into the courts again. And then Absalom decided, well, if I can't have it all, I'm just going to take it all. And so he, he successfully conspired to dethrone David. And David had a run for his life. And, uh, and his army um, that Absalom now controlled. Now, when he ran away, David took a few people that were kind of uh, friends of his. Uh, loyal servants. He had a small band of outfits, uh, outcasts that he kind of gathered together. Uh, these were like foreign mercenaries that he knew from the days when he was running away from the previous king, King Saul. Now, while running away, he also was insulted time and time again in these chapters. Uh, in fact, Absalom proclaimed him to be the rightful king 
uh, and the way he did it was sleeping with all of the people, all of the women in his in David's harem. And in addition, when he was David was chased out of the town, there was a guy named Shimei who threw clods at him and cursed him as he, he chased him out. And later, uh, of course, Shimei uh, dies at the hand of one of uh, David's generals. So here's a guy you think, man, talk, talk about a tough life. Uh, the hardships of a lack of food on the run for years, uh, shelter, military supplies, he didn't have enough of them. Uh, the persecution of rumors that were spread by his son Absalom, who said, well, God is no longer with David. That's a powerful thing to say. And ultimately, the whole calamity of Absalom's murder, murder by one of David's generals. Now, all of that is in 1 Samuel 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. It kind of shows us that David, I would say, was at, at a point of extreme human weakness. He was beat down. Yeah, both physically and emotionally, and we might even say spiritually, but I'm not so, so sure spiritually. But surprise, we need to look to the book of Psalms to learn of David's true spiritual state during this terrible time. And at this, some, at this time, some of you are kind of wondering, I thought we were going to talk about Psalm 8 today. You're going to finally get to that? Well, yeah, here we go. There are a group of prayers found in the book of Psalms uh, in, in fact, they start at Psalm 3 and they go through Psalm 14 that provide us insight into David's faith and trust in God, which are very instructive, not only, well, not only for us, but for anybody who reads them, you know, uh, what to do during our times of weakness or in times of our distress. Now, in Psalms 3 through 7, we're not going to look at those, but I would say go back and read them. David cries out to the Lord about his personal weaknesses, but yet his confidence that God will somehow deliver him. Now, for example, Psalm 3 says, Lord, how many are my foes? Now, you can imagine people chasing him around like crazy. Many are rising against me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Save me, O oh my God. And then we jump ahead to Psalms 9 through 14 in this kind of thing. David prays similarly for the, um, the outcasts and the afflicted ones, those people that he gathered together when he, he fled Jerusalem, and, and he's praying. Let me, this is from Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. All those who know your name put their trust in you, O Lord, have mercy, do not forsake those who seek you. So David's on the run. He's praying and he's looking to the Lord for some way out of this. So David is now in these Psalms. He's kind of reflecting on who God is. And I'd suggest that there are probably times in your life when you kind of wonder what the heck is going on. You have to step back and say, come on, God, what's going on here? Who are you? I thought you were a loving God. Maybe you thought those kinds of things. Or, or the miracle of God's special relationship with human beings. Psalm 8, which we're at today, opens and closes with verse 1 and 9 with these familiar words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. But the key verse I want to suggest to you is verse 2, where David says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Now, when you see that little phrase, out of the mouth of babies and infants, it refers to God's track record of using who? The powerless, the helpless people uh, to, 
defeat his enemies to establish his kingdom. Uh, people like a little shepherd boy by the name of what? David. Or how about uh, the prophets? Or what about a little baby that was sleeping in a manger? Or what about a, a bunch of uh, first century fishermen? Or how about uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh? And all of us here at Restore who have bumps and warts and blemishes as well. God uses these people. So we're going to take a little deeper dive now into Psalm 8. And as I, Here I picture David almost laying on his back on a hillside. He's being somewhere where he's kind of gazing up at whatever the sun, the moon, the stars, who knows what. And these words kind of flow out of his mouth. So just relax and imagine that you're looking up in the sky. I'm going to read this whole thing to you. For the choir director on the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, you can take that psalm and you can break that down roughly into two parts. Uh, First of all, in in verses 1 to 3, it's our majestic God who matters more than anything. And we have to step back and say that. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You are are one great, I was going to say dude, but God. I was going to say dude for Anthony, maybe. But then the second part of this, verses 4 through 9, is the other part of that. We have this, but we matter to this majestic God. We really do. So let me start uh, with our majestic God matters more than anything else. And you notice what it says up there, to the choir master, according to the giddeth. And that's what you think, what does this mean? Kind of get up and get, get up and sing, <laughs> get up and go. A psalm of David. In other words, this psalm was really intended to be sung. Now, the giddeth, you probably think, well, what on earth is a giddeth? We've never done one of those here yet, have we? Well, a giddeth is a word that's only found in three psalms. Uh, it's in Psalm 8, it's found in Psalm 81, it's found in Psalm 84, all of which are, are psalms of uh, David. And it probably refers to an instrument or a tune. It's likely that David, and we know that David said different places he would play his harp. And so that would be what this, this thing was. Um, a stringed instrument, and he sang these verses. Now, we're going to sing only a couple of verses a little bit later. But the theme of verse 8 is actually found in verse 1. It's repeated again in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. But maybe you notice here that it says the word Lord twice in a row, but one of those words is capitalized. And then it's followed by the same word again, which is, well, I've got the, at least the first letter is capitalized. It's not in lower case. What on earth does that mean? Well, the first Lord 
capital L-O-R-D, that big one, is the name Yahweh. That's the Hebrew, Yahweh, which was the unspoken name of God and means self-existent, covenant-keeping God. That's, that's a big definition for that. Now, the second one, capital L, small O-R-D, is the name Adonai in the Hebrew scripture, which means he's the master and the owner of everything. So, O Yahweh, on one hand, focuses on God's, what we call God's otherness, his separateness from us. Uh, but the phrase, our, you know, the smaller Lord here helps us see that God is personally involved with us. When Jesus appeared to his disciples, remember, one of them was missing initially, a guy by the name of Thomas. But when Thomas showed up and he saw Jesus, you remember what, Je- what Thomas said? He said, my Lord and my God. I mean, he, he, what he was saying is God is powerful and yet God is personal. Now, theologically speaking, in seminary, they teach you that this is both eminent and imminent. We could talk about that some other time. That's just a little seminary talk for you. But the, the dual orientation here, the key understanding here, is that God is both majestic And at the same time, guess what? He's mine. He's yours. Now, if we only focus on God as a uh, a forgiving God, a loving God, and not expecting much more, we tend to trivialize the Almighty. Conversely, if we picture God somehow removed from us, we can feel like he's impossible to know. And so Psalm 8 here, as we look at this, causes us to revel in the paradox of God's being. He is other, and yet he's ours. He's way out there, but he's this close. If I know Jesus as Savior, if you know Jesus as Savior today, friends, God is both majestic and he's yours. Same time. God's name is majestic over all the earth. There is no one else like him. Now, if you think only David figured this out in the Bible, well, let's go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus fifteen eleven. Who among the gods is like you, O Yahweh? Who is like you in majestic in uh, majestic and holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Now, the word you and yours refers to God like 15 times in this particular chapter. But David concludes verse 1 by saying that all of God's glory is way beyond the heavens. And that word glory uh, is a Hebrew word that really means heavy. And it kind of just again refers to God as just being, you know, like a, oh, remember we people say, oh, that's heavy, dude. And it just means it's awesome, God. And as David is laying maybe on the, at night and looking up at the stars and, and singing this song, uh, you know, the night sky dazzled by what he saw, and he kind of sees God's glory in all of the galaxy. Uh, in fact, you go a little bit further in Psalm 19.1, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. But now verse 2 takes us from the highest, this God, who is above all gods, to one of the smallest of creations. Out of the mouth of what? Babies and infants, you have established strength 
That's a big jump in one verse, isn't it? It's from heavenly bodies to happy babies. But then again, Jesus um, quotes this later in Matthew chapter 21, 16. Now, if you go to that chapter, you're going to find out that the religious leaders were all upset because kids were praising Jesus. And so what does Jesus do to him? Which is what we should do if people want to argue with us. Quote scripture. <laughs> and so he basically goes back and quotes this psalm. He says, do you hear what these are saying? Do you hear what these little kids are saying? Jesus said to them, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you prepared praise? He was just quoting Psalm 8 to them. It's a good thing for us to remember. A little scripture quoting to people helps out. Look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Now, that word look is another, it's a heavy word. It really means to meditate. It doesn't mean, like, oh, here, look at this. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. No, no, look at this. Meditate on this. Ponder this. Uh, study this. Uh, and that's just, just a, a great word here uh, to meditate. David looks up at the sky. And we could do that at night to see the, sun, the, the stars and all the planets and all that kind of stuff. And he gives testimony to God's workmanship. Like, wow, this is really cool. And David's just astonished at the greatness of God. And this is so such a great God that he does what? He has created everything. That's right. See, somebody's got all the hand stuff down there. She figures this out already. Now, it talks about his fingers as well. Okay, so you got the fingers going. It's a metaphor that was used for embroiderers, people who sewed different things. It, 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 so God is knitting everything together like he knit you together in your mother's womb. Uh, God's finger represents his power as, well, in Luke eleven twenty, 20, um, we read that Jesus cast out demons. How? By the finger of God. Interest. Yeah, no, get, get out of here. God only took a finger to get rid of the demons. So these three verses here help us see our majestic God matters more than anything. Now, the rest of this psalm establishes the second truth, and that's that, guess what? You matter to this majestic God. So the first half focuses on the Almighty. The second half focuses on what is man. How do we fit into this whole deal? What's our purpose? Why are we here? So as David ponders the power of God, he comes back to earth here in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care about him? Now, we have to stop and think, well, wow, you know, God treasures his creation. You know, you guys are all treasures. I'm a treasure. You're a treasure. All of God's children are treasures. He looks for ways to come close to us. He, he really desires to be a part of our life. He doesn't want to be a standoff kind of God. And this word here for man is the word that means weak and frail. So he desires to be with the weak people. He desires to be with the frail people, the, the little kiddos, the big kiddos. And yet God is mindful. of us. He just remembers us. God just thinks about us all the time. Now, that's really a covenant term. God's made a covenant with you. Uh, some churches, when they have baptism, they call it the covenant of baptism. We also had the covenant this morning. God has an agreement with us. Uh, Psalm 139. We may, we'll probably get to this one because it's another one of my favorites. 
uh, in verses 17 and 18, it says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Do you know what God thinks about you all the time? I mean, how many other people do you think about all the time? Yeah, you might think about your wife every once in a while. I wonder what she's doing upstairs. I wonder what's for supper. It says, how vast the sum of them, if I could count them, they are more than sand. It means that you can't even, you can't even count the number of times that God has thought about you. That's pretty crazy when you think about it. Zephaniah 3.17. You, know, you want to know what God thinks about you when he thinks about you? This is Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God, that's Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you manufacture a, a, a mental picture of what that looks like? What does it look like if somebody rejoices over you? I mean, I could say, Cheryl, well, how do you think when Jeff looks at you and he just goes, oh, man, you're, just, you're absolutely wonderful. I mean, how do you feel when that when stuff like that happens? Or somebody who quiets you with his love, you know, where it's, it's, a, it's a difficult time and somebody comes up to you and puts his arm around you and says, Nancy, it's going to be okay. Honest, it's going to be okay. It kind of calms you down. Or when somebody says, well, you know, you're really good at this. You know, Anthony, you've got this artistic ability that's off the charts. That's exulting over somebody. Or Kathy, you had so much as you played the piano this morning. That's exulting over something. But God does that to us all the time. See, when God thinks about you, guess what he does? He sings. You and I are the pinnacle of his creative power. Uh, we are made lower than God, but we're made to rule over his creation. Because verse 5 said, yet you have made him a little bit lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, I, want you, I hope you notice that all of this is rooted way back into Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Isn't it interesting how the Bible kind of goes, it hooks up over the, yeah, it hooks up over the, yeah, it hooks up all over the place. This is verses six to eight. Uh, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews, whoever that person was or is, also was very familiar with Psalm 8. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything under everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And then the writer to the book of Hebrews adds, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We could probably talk about that for a while, too. It's all God's, but there's a large part of creation today that chooses not to want to be in subjection to him. Maybe that's why next week, Sunday, I have to preach about being active in missions and sharing the gospel with other people. 
Yeah, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Well, you know, we can barely control our own lives, let alone have dominion over God's creation. And yet, Hebrews 2, verse 9, revolves, or resolves this tension by pointing us to Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 8. And again, that just shows you how Scripture all ties together, because the book of Hebrews says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And that, my friends, brings us full circle back to verse 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.